Have you ever loved someone so much that you followed them around and talked endlessly about them to all your friends and family? That's how much we love rhododendron, a quirky and amazing genus of flowering plants with a deep human history and an incredible ecological legacy. Follow along on our adventures as we learn about the remarkable things that folks all around the world have done for the love of rhododendron. In this episode, we meet rhododendron hybridizer and college professor Paul Chafe. We learn how a memorable brush with giant rhododendrons led him to hybridizing, how he's adding his own twist on breeding cold-hardy rhododendron by chasing a dream of tree-like, big-leaf plants that don't look like they should survive in the frigid cold of continental Canada. Representing the next generation of rhododendron breeders, Paul is expanding the palette of cold-hardy forms with the same modernistic approach embodied by author Henry James, who once quipped, a tradition is kept alive only by something being added to it. So hi everyone, I'm Connor Ryan, and I'm here with Christina Woodward. Hi everyone. Uh, we're the co-hosts for this episode of For the Love of Rhododendron. I actually feel like I'm outnumbered today because there's two Canadians on the call and I'm the only American. Um, but we're very pleased to have uh, Paul Chafe here with us. He's going to share some things about his his part of the rhododendron world. Ryan Fuller, one of the other co podcast hosts, uh, and I are the the two millennials on the podcast team. And Paul is also a millennial. Oh, so, yes. we're, so we're excited to, <laughs> to talk to Paul. Uh, there aren't as there aren't as many millennials in this this world, this rhododendron world, as as we would like, and, and so it's it's always exciting <laughs> when you find a new one. <laughs> um, and Paul participated recently in the um, American Rhododendron Society Convention's um, Hybridizers Roundtable. Um, the American Rhododendron Society has a spring convention every year. This year it was virtual for the first time. Um, and it's this great convention, lots of incredibly knowledgeable speakers and to garden tours. Um, and Paul got to participate in this great event called the Hybridizers Roundtable. And we we're hoping Paul could maybe let us know how that went for him and, and what he learned. Oh, from that roundtable. Yeah. Um, well, that was a lot of fun. I, um, I mean, a, a lot of the people on that roundtable I had met, um, a lot of the Nova Scotia uh, participants, um, like like Jack Louie, who used to be uh, part of the Niagara chapter as well, way back when I first started. I guess that would have been 12 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, but Jack and, and, and John Weagle, who I haven't seen in, in a number of years, but uh, very, very, very knowledgeable. And it's kind of intimidating with all of those uh, very well-established um, individuals. And, and uh, also people living in uh, cold climates, uh, sort of the East Coast, we all are sort of lumped in together uh, with these, you know, hot, humid summers and brutal cold winters, but we get warm snaps in the middle of winter that ruin a lot of the alpine plants for us, not to mention the hot, humid summers. Um, but anyway, yeah, that, that, that roundtable was a lot of fun. Um, and I always love hearing what uh, Kristen Thalfist from Finland has to say. Um, I had the chance to meet him when he came to talk at Niagara uh, 2012 or so. I'm trying to remember when it was. Uh, really, interesting, really interesting guy and, and very, very, very knowledgeable. And has a great website if you haven't checked it out. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing to me how how much hybridizing is just part of the hobby and so how so many mm -hmm. people have just taken it on it, yeah it's like yeah. i mean it's there's it the history it, i mean it's it's like decades and decades of people breeding and and you know you're part of this next group of people who are just <laughs> keeping it going I, yeah yeah um there's always you always have to add your own sort of twist to these things as well um so the traditional thing has been uh, almost exclusively focused on flowers, maybe a, a few smattering people talking about rhododendron foliage. Um, 
myself and and certainly a few of the others at Nova Scotia like that species look because um, we can't we can't grow the species here. Like if I could grow Sino Grande, I would end a day. I don't need to do anything, but you can't. But rhododendron, huge genus, you can just sort of you can mix the genetics and they easily hybridize and and it's a lot of fun too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. And and that was something that struck me from watching that hybridizers roundtable is the number of people who are so focused on foliage now. I, mm -hmm. I think people have realized that, you know, a truss is a truss and it can only be so nice. Um, but, you, you know, you have an evergreen plant in your yard that that's there all yeah. year. And, and so yeah. there's there's all kinds of great things you can do um, to improve them besides flower. Besides the flower. Um, but I also live, um, don't, I don't know where you're from, Connor, um, originally, but. I'm from the South, so uh, hot and humid, but not cold. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're accustomed to broadleaf evergreen plants. Right. We don't have them. <laughs> so I was looking as I drove uh, from where I live in Parham to my parents' house um, to get a little bit of better internet connection. And I passed one rhododendron and it's on their road and it's a weak little thing. Um, but that's sort of it, a box door rhododendron, one of them uh, and nothing else. I mean, yeah, needle evergreens, but nothing with broad leaves. Mm -hmm. And for me, this, even growing a rhododendron is exotic here. <laughs> so Paul, I, I need to ask you, where exactly are you located then? My garden? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, not where I am right now. Uh, my garden is in uh, sort of a USDA zone four, Jeez. five, uh, getting warmer all the time. Uh, we're not really getting those minus 30, whatever winters that we used to get. Uh, it is sort of north of Kingston, Ontario, about 50 kilometers north of Kingston. Um, it's called Parham, which nobody has ever heard of. Um, but if you look at a map, it's about uh, 15 kilometers from a small, small town called Charbot Lake. Um, closer to Kingston than Ottawa, but in between Kingston and Ottawa, I would say. There's not really any major landmarks around. So yeah, the location... Arham, it's on what's called the Canadian Shield, so the lot of lot of rock, uh, iron rich granite, uh, soil pH is it's sort of it's natural between five and six, so I can. It's a little sandy. I usually add stuff, but the soil you can just plop rhododendrons in. And where I am now is my parents' house, which is in the Great Lakes Basin, uh, sort of fifteen kilometers north of Lake Ontario. I, it's limestone soil here. The pH is way too high. It used to grow rhododendrons here. Um, I'm much happier in the new location, even though it's further from the lake and a little cooler. Wow, it's 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 it, rhododendron is such an interesting group because they're they're my experience with them is that they're they're kind of hard to kill, but they're very all they're also very hard to keep happy. And so you yeah. can always just like plop them in the ground and you'll have your rhododendron that looks bad. Um, and so you always have these like spots. It's like, so now mm. you're, you're further north and you have better soil, but then it's so cold. <laughs> and it's where, where cold, your parents yeah. are, it's yeah. like, yeah, it's like warmer, <laughs> but you have the high yeah. pH. It's like, well, high you pH. Just can't everything win. you can't win. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they, I mean, you can make them happy on this, on this limestone rich soil but it takes a lot of work mm -hmm. just the, having the natural soil where you can just dig a hole maybe add some stuff to it and it's all set so you're you're almost introducing a new plant to the area where you live is that right um in terms of horticulture you know there might be a few pjms around maybe um but certainly I've not seen any lepidotes. They would do well. Um, there may be some, but certainly none of the size that that you would see in 
um, well, places where they've been grown for longer. So Mississauga or, or Tour Serrano, they're still rare, um, but you can get some tree sized ones and we don't know. There's nothing like that here. So, so those are the, that's the, that's really your, you, you're as a hobby hybridizer, that's kind of your, your focus, right? Is, is what, what are the traits that you're really focused on? So, yeah, what I, my first um, thought when I got into hybridizing was I kept trying to grow the evergreen forms of Magnolia virginiana and I tried to grow American holly and they'd live for a few years. I tried to grow Southern Magnolia more times with <laughs> wrappings than you could believe um, and nothing lasted more than a few years. And so I just kept doing research and doing research. I'm like, there has to be something that I can grow with, with broad leaves and that it'll become a tree. And so <clears throat> I had lived in Halifax for schooling, so in Nova Scotia. And I knew that there was giant rhododendrons there. And so <clears throat> they don't do well here. And then I started getting in talk, uh, contacting people, looking for people who had worked with tree forms or with large growing rhododendrons. And that brought me to Nick Yarmashuk and uh, Christina as well. Uh, through, um, through one particular hybrid that Bruckner had done, which was uh, Brachycarpum tigristeti by Arboreum, which I have managed to get a plant of and kill. <laughs> that plant is Joseph Bruckner, uh, one of my favorites. Um, but since then, I've just been looking at, at that tree form. So a broadleafed evergreen tree that will grow here. And then beyond that, Initial goals, I didn't care, um, but I've certainly been bringing more of the big leaf, trying to get something with a little bit of big leaf like Rex or Fictolactium. Um, none of the Macabianum hybrids have been successful, but I, I managed to get some pollen this year. So uh, from a, a hybrid from Ron Rabideau, uh, which I'm pretty excited about. So we'll see if anything comes from that, but my goals, so my, my initial thoughts was that tree form never really cared too much about flowers. I mean, I like them, but tree form. So something that grows big um, and then good foliage. And particularly I like those large evergreen leaves. Um, and the, the challenge there is getting something that's you know, 30 plus centimeters or, or more than a foot that has good indumentum and then we'll, We'll take that minus 30, minus 35 Celsius, sort of minus 30 Fahrenheit type temperature. Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty amazing goal. And I when I think about we're so I I manage a garden in Ohio when technically we're zone six B, though I think historically we're zone five. So could yeah. get the negative 20 and negative in 2015 it got to negative 24. So you always have to be aware of those. Yeah. But I can't yeah. think of any well, I think I can think of maybe two plants that have even close to big leaves um, and are tree-like. Mm -hmm. And so there's one called Holden Spring Herald that has, yeah. you know, it's, it's a Rex yeah. hybrid. And so it gets tall. Um, I don't, but I don't, I don't know if it can make it by you. Um, I've got three of them. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> unbloomed, unbloomed, <laughs> but they've been unscathed by our so far mild winters. We'll see what happens when we get a real one. Yeah, that's great though. And it is a fairly simple hybrid. So, I mean, yeah. it's just Catawba Yentz, so it could potentially have some real cold, cold hardiness there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like that has big leaves. We have Spellbinder, also big leaves, but not really a big tree. Um, and I don't know, that's about it. So it, it is something that's really missing from the cold hardy palette. Yeah, I have, um, I have a plant of Spellbinder that I have nursed for about 10 years and it is still... I don't know, two and a half feet tall. Uh, it finally seems like it's starting to get some vigor. We'll see that it's one of those ones that's right sort of at the edge here. <laughs> a mild winter, it's happy. And then a cold winter and it loses its leaves. It's brown. We'll see. We'll see if it, it gets some feet. Is climate change a factor uh, in your area as yet regarding you know, the rhododendrons? There are certainly some areas, I think, like further north where the winters are certainly getting much, much, much milder and as are the summers. Uh, there is certainly some change, 
But the thing with, with climate change is it's not, it's not going to eliminate the extremes because we still have, we don't have a, a protection from our north. So if you get a really cold snap, it could just plow in from the north to here. The Great Lakes aren't going to do that much. So we could still get these extreme events. Um, but overall, the milder winters, yeah, I think that in terms of getting plants to survive to size, I think it's going to be, you know, in this one particular instance, it will help me. But overall, getting warmer summers and, and especially those warmer summer overnight lows, mm -hmm. working with, with Asian plants from the mountains that just, you know, they're trying to hold their breath for a few days and it doesn't get below 20 Celsius at night, that's tough on them. Yeah, yeah. So one sort of cancels out the other. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So how, how do you go about your, I think as a hybridizer, you can be like very, very detailed and keep incredible de records <laughs> or you can just kind of do whatever you want and Wing you get seeds, you get seeds. Where do you fall on that? <laughs> um, so I tend to write down the crosses that I make, but then I only sort of enter into my date, my, my Excel sheet, my database, uh, the crosses that take. So anything that I get seeds from gets a number and put, gets put on my list. Um, in terms of, you know, I have all these, when I go out into my garden to do crosses, um, I have all these great ideas but I bring a whole big tub of different pollen. <laughs> and so I'll be sorting through and, oh, this'll be good. This'll be good. Um, so there is some, there is some thought put to it, uh, but it just becomes, you know, those crosses are made and then I'm like, oh, this might be interesting. So, so there is some, I don't know what you'd call that, play to it <laughs> as well. I, I, I completely have that experience too. Like yeah. as a hybridizer, I, I spend, <laughs> I write out like a plan in the winter yeah. and I'm like, yeah. okay, these are the crosses that I'm going to make. And then I get out into the field and everything is flowering. And I'm like, oh my God, I have this idea. I have this idea. I have this idea. <laughs> and it's, you have to really rein yourself in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause you could make a lot of crosses. Yeah. I guess it's always good to make too many and not enough, but yeah. <laughs> when you get extra seeds, you can always donate it. Right. <laughs> yeah. If you get enough. My problem is that I'll get something that I'm really excited about. And then I'll get like four seeds in a tiny little pod that I'm crushing. Get one plant that makes it for sort of two weeks and then kicks it. And then you have to repeat that same cross. Oh, man. Very frustrating. <laughs> you'd think you'd have it dialed in after a while, but it temperature yeah. or incompatibility. I don't know. But and it's sometimes it's just the year. It's like you yeah, make the cross yeah. one year, it doesn't work. The next year, it does work. <laughs> you, you make it on the, on, you, you use one parent this, yeah. that year you, as, a, as a female, the next year you use it as the male, it works. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I yeah. find this conversation very interesting because um, as a, you know, if you're a hybridizer as a professional, uh, you know, with a big company or whatever, you know, you, you more or less know what to do. But you both are really picking this up on the go with mentors, with other people's experiences and your own uh, experiments. There's no such thing as going to hybridize a one cl 100 class, you know? So for how long does this take place? Do you, do you sort of learn for the rest of your career on how, how to hybridize or what to do, how to do it? There's, there's quite a few good articles um, and, and a few books that explain the process. And I've seen some, some quite good videos. Um, but I know for myself, it was taking other, some other people's ideas and sort of adapting it for what works for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the basics of it are, are sort of your, your botany class learning which bits are bit are which um, it's, you know, you got to get your hands dirty and, and think about what might work and two plants that seems like, seem like winners that you put together. That's no guarantee of anything. That's, 
in my experience, a lot of dead seedlings. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so do you, um, do you mostly make fresh crosses? Do you, do you store pollen? Do you collect pollen ahead of time? Do you use paint brushes? So I am shameless about asking for pollen um, because a lot of my plants and the ones that I, the plants that I'm most interested in won't grow here. So I have to get the pollen from away. So things like uh, the rhododendron species botanical garden who offer pollen uh, for a cost uh, that's been a major source for me, but then also reaching out to people who have uh, fertile, um, fertile F1 hybrid. So big leaf with something hardy. And those are the ones that I'm most interested in. And I don't make very many, you know, from one plant in my garden to another because they don't have the genetics that I want. So I'm, I'm getting those from elsewhere. It, it's amazing how many, um, yeah, great resources there are out there and how many people are just so willing to, to help out. Yeah. Yeah. I know I've ordered species, I've ordered pollen from the species garden. Um, I actually thought about trying to gauge the interest of folks who might be interested in pollen from like the whole Marboretum collection and we mm -hmm. can like a, a volunteer program going, I think like at the species garden and just, you know, send out pollen to anyone who wants it. Is it yeah. Is, is these vast yeah. collections that people would really benefit from. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But the leech plants and I mean, depending on, on what you have, you certainly have uh, some, some very different genetics mixed in with, um, with, with hardy stuff. And obviously it's growing there. So picked for things that will grow in zone five or six or whatever it, we decide that it is. Yeah. And then, and then once you get a successful cross and you grow out your seedlings, how do you how do you decide? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I um. I decide which ones are good. Yeah, and how well? How do you? How many do you sow? Uh, well, first off, how many crosses do you tend to make in a year? How many do you? How many seedlings do you? Seeds do you sow? <laughs> anyway, lots of numbers. Lot questions. More, <laughs> a lot more than I am successful at growing. Um, that's always my getting the seedlings to the point where I can plant them out. That is where I've struggled. I've just moved into a new house where I have a whole room dedicated to it. So fingers crossed, this is going to be better for a greenhouse room. Um, I'd say 50, 60 crosses, successful crosses, because I only count the ones that, that take. Um, and then, you know, of those, there'll be some that just don't germinate especially with long distant genetics, Asian stuff with, with, uh, you know, maximum or something. They don't love to, they don't love to make seed. Um, and the seed that they do make can be pretty weak. Um, so then, you know, depending on which crosses are solid, I'll plant them out in June. Um, don't get them as big as some other, other folks. Um, and that, that's just, I think that's a learning curve, getting, getting to figure out how much fertilizer you can put on these things to get them from, you know, tiny to, to a few inches. Um, and then I let nature pick. So I plant them out in little areas, with a label, and, you know, I water them in the spring, and then I stop watering them in July. And then whatever's alive next spring, good. Um, they get three years sort of in that area and anything that looks promising gets planted into uh, a spot in the woodland. And that's sort of where the first of my, uh, the first few of the, the selected seedlings are now just to see how they perform as they grow. The little tiny guy, little tiny plant under the snow is going to be fine in a zone four. When it gets above the snow, that's when you know what the hardiness is. And so that's sort of that three year cutoff. When the leaves are brown in the spring, you're like, okay, it looked great, giant leaves, but not worth it. Oh, selection for me is hardiness first. You know, for the ones that live through my torture. Yeah. How do you protect those tiny uh, plants? Nope. nope. So animals don't worry them or? Well, so in the past, I have had, I've added a little bit of deer deterrence to it. 
Um, in the past, I've had my horses tromp through the seedling patch. I had a mother and fawn bed down on a patch of seedlings. So I lost all but two seedlings from one year. Um, so horses, donkeys, stuff like that. Uh, they don't get any protection though. I'm not, I'm not picking wimps. I want plants that are robust. <laughs> okay, even against deer grazing. Even against the deer though. It could be a whole nother set of traits you like select <laughs> Deer resistance, yeah. yes. Interesting, because we have such difficulty with, of all things, squirrels. You know, they will dig up the ground. They've made an absolute yes. mess. Yes, so chipmunks, yeah. Yeah, I've had I've had a few chipmunk holes. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you know that's one or two plants, um, and then we do have some barn cats that take care of quite a few of the chipmunks. Oh, really? Um, they leave you. They leave. They leave us presents, which is just wonderful. Well, when a rhododendron seed is so so small, and, and the seedlings are so so small for so long, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're also just like a lot more robust than you'd think you just you, you just kind of like plop them in the ground and they most of them will just and they'll, in they'll grow yeah mm -hmm. the, i'm finally getting self-sown seedlings here like they're tough wow we haven't ever seen moisture. that wow. we have that even moisture um they just need it so they'll grow here on like partially rotten logs in moss i'm getting them under plants oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> like, like, should I bring a partially rotten log into my greenhouse and sow the seeds on that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Or like plant the plant the two plants that you want to cross together, put a log underneath of them, underneath them and then just let the, <laughs> let the seedlings grow up. Yeah, so Paul, we were wondering what got you into botany and horticulture? What kind of studies were you were you doing and what sort of background do you have with plants? So my mother's a bit of a gardener and, and her mother was as well. So my grandmother, um, but the thing that really sticks out in my mind is we used to drive to Florida. So from Kingston, Ontario, the 24 hour drive down to Bradenton. And wow. I was looking for that first sable minor palm along the highway in North Carolina. Um, <clears throat> sort of the neat plants that they could grow in Florida that, you know, I had never seen before up here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's sort of where that, um, that's where that, I guess my, my interest in growing what can't grow came from mm -hmm. um, and sort of, sort of, sort of through school and, and um, beyond that, like, I just, uh, understanding why these plants could grow some places but not others and then um, eventually led to to graduate work in um, in plants and you know in particular on plant breeding systems mm -hmm. um, and yeah and then I just kept my side passion for uh, things like um, plants that'll grow here that shouldn't um, Interesting, but like, you know, what are, I made it into. Sorry, I was just going to ask, what are some of the what are some of the non rhododendrons you you're getting away with up there? <laughs> well, not as much as I used to. So I used to grow, um, you know, the musa baju and the, yeah. um, some some needle palms and stuff like that. Uh, you know, you kept them through a few years, and then you get a bad one or a power outage, and you know, your cheater system where you have them wrapped up with cables doesn't do you any good in that case you should really go to <laughs> go to lots of lengths to keep those things alive yeah, yeah. <clears throat> keep those things alive and i know i know there's quite a few people in places like nova scotia still doing that uh you know tracky carpus wrapped up and wrapped up in in blankets and with heaters and stuff um i've gotten away from that and you know moved from that growing what can't grow to growing what can but looks like it shouldn't and that's especially where the rhododendron stuff comes in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like um, 
plants like big leaf magnolia or magnolia tripatella that look so out of place here in zone four, but are just hardy, hardy, hardy. Hmm. Just will take the cold. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah. There are the there's, um, and it's a lot of research, but you know, there's a lot of great, really great horticulturalists in, in sort of these marginal zones zone five and six who, who've done a lot of that research for you. So you can take what they've, what they've done and what sort of grows sort of close to where you are and, and find the winners. But with a lot of these things, um, it's finding a source for the plant material. That is true. And that's becoming um, almost impossible. Yeah. 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 So, so what are your sources? Do you have any? (laughs) I'm kind of asking for myself a little, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Um, I have in the past ordered through uh, the States, but a lot of the best nurseries for um, a lot of the best nurseries that would, would are willing to ship plants are sort of gone now. Um, and I'm trying to think of where I recently got anything. Um, the American Rhododendron Society was <laughs> the last place <laughs> I got plants through Nova Scotia and I had them shipped here. Um, there, there are like a very few and I think they're going out of business nurseries in Ontario that you have to drive to to get get material um but very hard yeah I'm trying to think I don't even know anymore yeah and and my experience has been the burden falls a lot on these societies it's the American Rhododendron Society but it's a lot of the other societies too that's I mean that's where you get choice plants unfortunately a lot of times you have to start from seed but it is at least the source yeah yeah Yeah. especially with the magnolias um and the hybrids thereof, like it was, no one sells these plants. Mm-hmm. No one. And and like a lot of other woody plants, uh, magnolias aren't hardy until they have a little bit of size to them. So, you know, you got your work cut out if you're trying to grow them from seed. <sighs> yeah. But rhododendron is getting that way too, unless you want Nova Zembla. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, you know, the yeah. sources have just dried up, or the, not the sources, the um, uh, the varieties have really dried up. Yeah. The big box stores have, you know, chosen, yep. actually, uh, you know, taken on the market, and um, they don't have a lot of selection, so it is difficult. No, no. But, um, we used to be very fortunate here in Ontario to have uh, Jack Louis so, so close, because he, he mm-hmm. sought out and would get cutting grown plants of a lot of different things. Um, and I still managed to get a few plants from him, but he's in Nova Scotia now. Um, yeah, I know he's still seeking of, out cuttings because he asked me for cuttings last year yeah. and I expect him to <laughs> ask for cuttings this year too. Yeah. But yeah. it's a little, yeah. bit, little bit easier than ordering from the States because you have to go through the phyto inspections. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, even yeah. though it's far away in Nova Scotia, it's still in some sense easier closer yeah yeah the the shipping is cheaper and uh you don't need a bunch of paperwork yes yes. which is always good and that's also tough on the the nursery owner the person selling the plants yeah to do all that extra paperwork i understand why a lot of these people don't want to do it yeah Yeah, Yeah, it's a lot of yeah and one, one thing that i've noticed is you know there's this history of like um these breeder nurserymen who would just create their plants yep. that they were interested in and then and then introduce yep. those and and they don't exist anymore so people are just propagating no. other plants that already exist and not trying to create their own new things not trying to create their own new things or propagate them um some of the nova scotians do that and um oh his name escapes and, me and right now chris something out on the west coast is selling oh, his Troutman. own plants yeah Troutman, yeah yes yeah, but I mean, about... Nova Scotia plants are probably somewhat useful to those of like me on the East Coast, but a West Coast plant, I can't use that. And they, they can be beautiful plants, they can be amazing plants, but they're, in terms of growing in a zone five, it's, you know, mm-hmm. you're buying an annual. Yeah, and, and in my experience, there's, th- this is where hardiness zones fail us, because a lot of times those plants yeah. might be hardy. Yeah 
but the, it's not the hardiness <laughs> that's the problem. It's the heat no, or the sun or the, the heat. Yeah. So yeah. Paul, and don't you use... have any? Don't you have your own ambitions in um, a propagation nursery? You've got a large property. <laughs> got a large property. Um, I I I am slowly, as I learn, starting to propagate more plants and. Um, in the next few years, we'll start selling a very small number. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a plan anyway, if I can keep things alive. Oh, we're looking um, forward just, to it. <laughs> <laughs> just to, uh, just to, you know, supplement, or at least, you know, people who are interested can, can get them, or locals can even come and get them. Mm -hmm. um, just to help keep my cost down, because I do spend quite a bit <laughs> on my hobby. Uh, and that... I think that's, you know, not too, too much work for me. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll get some people interested in, in some plants that aren't available in there in the Home Depot or the, the Rona oh, around yes. here. Oh yes. Yeah. We're really looking forward to it. So that's something that we really are looking forward to. And um, mm -hmm. you mentioned that this is your hobby. It's your avocation. Yeah. Yeah. What is your <laughs> career? I teach uh, at a community college um, in uh -huh. Kingston, Ontario. Uh -huh. And so I run, my department is called Pre-Health Sciences. So, so I teach in that and then I also coordinate that program. So that's what I do for work. But my uh -huh. training, like I said, is in, is in plants and particularly in uh, plant molecular genetics. Yes. Um, yes. So I sort of switch gears to teaching. I find it more interesting and, and less stressful than trying to trying to round up research money and especially working on plants right rounding up research money is not not always an easy thing yeah. to do you're so right um yeah that's that's <laughs> a real that's a real battle sure or yeah. like choosing to work on plants that aren't like corn or soy or right you know the, the big money crops <laughs> you should yeah you should add that in yes you're absolutely right there yeah <laughs> <laughs> ornamentals we know, don't get much uh it's an it's interest <laughs> not not for big bucks yeah no no <laughs> but you know i i also need to comment that in addition to your botanical interests and your successes and as a teacher you also have a bit of a history as a as a sportsman um what who I, told you i remember <laughs> i remember when you used to cycle from toronto to mississauga in one go. Oh, yes. And, yeah. You know, I was just amazed, but I didn't realize that you were also a runner, a champion runner. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> I, I represented Canada on sort of three occasions um, in my time. I was a good runner. I wasn't great, but I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really complemented as well the, um, the, the plant stuff because, you know, you get down and and especially in the lab getting down, you know, you're working with pipetters and stuff. Um, and then you can get up and go, you know, run the 15 or 10 kilometers home. That was great. <laughs> um, you can't do that anymore. I, I can't do that anymore. No, my, my body has quit that stuff on me. <laughs> yeah. And I even had to, so I took up soccer around about 30. I had an injury uh, that sort of ended my running career. Oh. Uh, yeah. And and as soon as you lose your focus, running 100, 160 kilometers a week or 100 miles a week, when you're not really into it and you're sort of slogging through, that's that's not a recipe for success. And so, had an injury, lost my focus, and you know, sort of changed gears. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But that that was. Um... You know, you certainly made the best and the most of those opportunities, you know, yeah, in the sports yeah. And so, yeah, Christina, you, I wasn't even much of a cyclist at the time, but yes, I used to ride, um, I was living in downtown, well, downtown-ish Toronto and, and used to cycle out to um, where Marta Bruckner lived at, at, uh, at Carmen Drive there. And <laughs> that's where I honed my hybridizing skills because, as a young mm -hmm. student, I didn't have any property, and and the few plants that I'd managed to to buy were, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away in a garden. Mm -hmm. um, so that was great for me to be able to do oh, that. You know, 
Marta, Marta Bruckner, my mother, she was very fond of you. And um, <laughs> we, we used to have, um, you know, big smiles and, and great chats. And uh, yeah. she was always pleased yeah. when you would come. And the, the few times that you did visit, um, you yeah. know, she would always have you in for tea and cookies. Oh, yeah. And she was always very happy when she had to bring out the second <laughs> plate of cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the good old days. And, you know, I, yeah, I that was to, fun. Yeah, it, you know, it was really great. And I have to comment that um, I was in on some of some of Paul's earlier hybridizing efforts. He wanted to you hybridize a few of the plants in our property. And that was great. You know, I watched and I could see how it was done. And, and the following year, we were wondering, well, you know, was it the year or a little bit later in the fall? I forget. Um, yeah. But we, uh, we, we hadn't marked the trees and there were several hundred uh, bushes on the property. We hadn't marked the <laughs> plants that he had hybridized. So, and you won't believe this, Paul, after all these years, I'm still finding a few little... Um, Those little tags. Oh, Those goodness. little tags on the bushes <laughs> that we never found. So, so initially when, when I was doing it, yeah, it was little tags with bread ties on them. But I've switched now, and I use bright colored flashing tape so that I don't lose them. <laughs> and just write the name of the plant on the, on the flashing tape. Yeah, you have to have some way to identify because oh, yes. all that work is so it's all part of the record keeping, I guess. I don't think that, oh, that, that was... is a trait unique to Paul because we, <laughs> I know that we have all kinds of debris all over our gardens. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. From people who are just making pollinations or doing something else, they hang a tag and then it's just, <laughs> it just becomes a part of the plant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it grew in like an old tag. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it just adds character. That's, that's an interesting observation, I guess, uh, that a visitor might make, you know, what are all those curious little things on the plants, you know? Right, yeah. it's just like an eccentric, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, forgetful scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I almost feel like I've talked to more Canadians in the American Rhododendron Society than I have talked to Americans <laughs> in the society. <laughs> so how did you get involved and, and, and what is your involvement now? Oh, goodness. Um, so that comes back to, so my first involvement was, um, I contacted uh, Mississauga, the Bruckner Garden through Mississauga, asking about a very specific plant. They forwarded the email to Christina. And at the same time, I was talking to Nikki Armashuk, who has been a, a very active member of the Niagara chapter. Um, and so talking to Nick, um, uh, talking to, to a number of other people. He put me in contact as well with Dave Hinton, who was a, used to be a hybridizer out of Orono, Ontario, um, sort of between Kingston, on the north shore of Lake Ontario, between Kingston and uh, Toronto, not too far from Oshawa, Ontario. Um, and I, I talked to, to Dave, I talked to Nick, um, and then I decided that, well, I can get plants, they seem like knowledgeable plants people. Um, someone like Dave Hinton knew so much, so knowledgeable. Um, and so from there, that's how I got involved, was sort of through my own research and then people being welcoming at the chapter. Um, but the access to um, a number of cutting grown plants from, from Dave Hinton's hybrids sort of I guess was the icing on the cake for me, um, sort of the access to those local hybrids that really outperform anything here, uh, sort of how I got involved. Um, and I was still in, in school. I was still um, at university there in, in Toronto at that time. So I didn't have a lot of, of time to give, but I certainly made as many trips down to Niagara uh, for the meetings as possible. If we had COVID then, I could have gone to all of them because we can just <laughs> join on Zoom. <laughs> yeah. I think, Christina, you probably joined around that same time. Yes, I was quite new at the time. Yeah. As well. Yeah. But I, I wonder, do you remember any of the um, plants that uh, you sourced from Dave Hinton's 
uh, collection? Oh, yes. I, I still have a list. Oh. I still have a list of them. <laughs> One of them is, has lost a label. Um, but, you know, it's, it's uh, Sandra Hint and things like that. Uh, there's a Braggy Carpum Tiger Steady Eye by uh, Metternichi that I have. And I wasn't really fond of it until this year, but it was absolutely covered with blooms. So I made a number of crosses onto it. Um, but the good thing about Dave Hinton's plants is that he picked them not for their flowers, but for how well they did in his garden. And the flowers were sort of a secondary consideration. So, mm. so these plants are, they're absolutely gorgeous foliage plants. And, and a number of people have been using them in crosses and just tough as nails, these mm. things. Connor, for you, they might, they might fall bloom though, because they do have Smyrnoei in them. Interesting. Oh. You, know, but, you know, some people consider that a perk. So, yeah. <laughs> so it might be yeah. okay. <laughs> as long yeah. as it doesn't ruin the whole show. Right. <laughs> we have a we have yeah. a plant called Last Hurrah that's an, an Arium mm -hmm. hybrid. And it it probably it blooms probably better in the fall oh. than it does in the spring. Um, <laughs> just, it's uh yeah, reblooming. It's it's something that's really taken over azaleas. It's not I don't think it's been really explored in uh in rhodos. In rhododendrons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's what I love about the society is there's all these, you know, it's 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 a big, you know, nationwide, continent-wide mm -hmm. group, and um, but there's so many local, you know, sec sections of the of the society oh, where yeah. there's just great knowledge and yeah. great plants that are specifically developed and selected in your part of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, the international collection through the connection through oh. the ARS is valuable. Uh, as Paul mentioned oh, yeah. earlier, the connection with Christian Thickquist, he's only one individual, you know, that there's a, there's that a big group in Finland, a number of people. And yeah. Germany, New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, New Zealand, we maybe can't count because they're too warm. No, but there is there's, there's a <laughs> lot of just incredible plants there. Yeah. What a great climate they have. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and uh, in addition to this being a podcast for the Rhododendron, American Rhododendron Society, it's also we're hoping to you know gear it towards you know people like me and you who are you know younger or trying to attract younger folks to the society. Yeah. So do yeah. you, do you see? I know Christina was involved in in a project with um, college age students at the Niagara School of Horticulture. Um, are there? Do you see any aspects of the society that would be you know, that are great for people your age or and my age, or how do we, how do we get people into rhododendrons? <laughs> so I think I mentioned this to uh, sort of uh, a fellow by the name of Joe Bruso um, out of Massachusetts. Uh, he was talking about that same sort of thing, getting people, you know, new sort of fresh blood into things. Um, and so my suggestion was, or, you know, just throwing it out there, I guess, uh, was, you know, making sure that people know that they, they can have access to plants and, and, and knowledge as well. Um, you know, you don't have to be a hybridizer to join the society. You just have to like, you know, pretty plants <laughs> and, and getting access to that and making it known that you have access to it is something that, that might be, you know, really um, attractive to especially younger people who are interested in horticulture. So Christina, getting involved with the, with the um, botanical garden, folks in the botanical garden there, that's one good way to get people in. Um, finding someone who already has that love of horticulture um, and, you know, pushing them towards rhododendron. And the other thing that I mentioned was that that younger people don't have the same sort of um, income anymore. Uh, things cost more and we're paid less. And that's just a fact of, of what's happened in our society. Younger folks are interested in gardening. Um, I was saying as well that, yeah, we're interested in gardening. Uh, it's just that people are growing vegetables on their balcony. You know, owning a house is not a reality for for a huge number of people. And so 
I I don't know the answer to that aspect, like getting people when you have a huge group of people who who can't buy a house and probably never unfortunately never will have the opportunity, how do you get them interested? And I and I don't know there's an answer to that. Um just change changing um expectations, I guess. More many more renters than owners. And and how do you get someone who's renting a house to to commit to um or to even you know, to join a rhododendron society when they're not going to have that 20-year, see that plan for 20 years type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I think that we all need to pivot our breeding programs towards house plants because that's what's really... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, but I think... Yeah, I don't know. Oh, you know, the expectations are... Of us who are interested in these plants and also of the mm-hmm. societies that support that interest, the expectations mm-hmm. do have to change because young people will not have access to gardens, maybe ever. No, not, you know, not, not just a, because not the of vast the, majority. youth yeah. and income or the lack of, but yeah. space is becoming unavailable. You know, we live yeah. in high rises. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, how, how do we how do we foster an interest in conserving and preserving the rhododendrons that we do have? Uh, you yeah. don't necessarily have to grow them in your own property to take care of them or to appreciate them. No, you could have things like the Bruckner Garden, like you have in Mississauga, where you have a collection, that a park, basically a park that a number of people have access to. And you need people to maintain it. And you need people to maintain it, yeah. <laughs> and that could be a function of the society. It doesn't have to be the city of Mississauga like it is at the garden. It could be, you know, a group of volunteers. That's a good point. Who belong yeah. to the society and they are trained. Who belong, by there the you society. go. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. good. And I yeah, I think that um I've seen some on that from the Nova Scotia, the Atlantic chapter, mm-hmm. um, where they do big big group things. And I don't know that I've seen anything from Niagara on that. Not not oh, no. apart from the small um, yeah. inroads that we made with the uh, students a few years ago. Yeah. And yeah. then, of course, COVID put a stop to all that. So, yeah, you know, that's one well, of the reasons there hasn't been much activity. Something that's just popped into my head is if you go back and read Leach's Rhododendrons of the World, he talks about hybridizing for sort of small suburban houses where people aren't going to have a lot of space. As opposed to the big estates that they had previously, um, and so I guess we're just getting packed into less and less space. So mm-hmm. it's adapting to that, or you know, you could be like me and make hybrids that you're interested in. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Although I must say, I I could not. I bought my property five years ago. We could not have afforded it. If it was if it was now, the the prices have have more than tripled in my area, even in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say as, as simple as getting the word out, because I, I, I know there's yeah. plenty of in the Great Lakes chapter here in Ohio. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of people who would be very welcoming to mm-hmm. a younger person who wants to just go visit their garden and look at look at the rhododendrons that they have yeah. in their well established gardens. Um, yeah. Yeah. We also we also have the benefit here of having native rhododendrons, and so yes, exploring options do. to go into <laughs> native population. I don't know. I don't know how far north they grow, but not much further than here. I expect. No, no. The um, we certainly don't have any lepidotes here. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a native calmia. So... I don't think we have rhododendron canadans here. So you couldn't grow any of the Canadian yeah. species uh, in your area? The Me? Canadian species that we have. Um, I could, for sure, but I don't. <laughs> yeah, the little, I mean, I, I think they would probably grow here. Um, I just don't. Maybe I should look, maybe I should start some from seed. Pick some that, that look good. Hmm. Never thought of doing that. I've seen pretty photos of some blue foliage versions of 
rhododendron yeah. canadense looks yeah yeah jamie um oh, i can't remember his last name now uh has a ferguson? pretty nice blue no. form no no not ferguson jamie. it'll come to me at the end allison maybe <laughs> <laughs> yes jamie allison yes jamie allison, allison has um yeah or at least had seed from it yeah it's beautiful absolutely I um I do wonder if you've this this time of year is kind of one of my favorite times of the year because I walk around the garden looking at um you know after bloom season of course but yeah. I walk around the yeah. garden and you can see the capsules swelling and you can see yeah. which ones of your crosses have actually worked <laughs> yeah yeah and I'm wondering if you've if you've done any of that <laughs> I I have um so um not as much as normal. So I'll tell you what's happened. So I'm in the middle of hay season. We do have a, a, a farm that does work uh, as well. And I just had Lyme disease, Yikes! which was a great two weeks. Um, so my garden has been sort of on its own for the month of July, but I did manage to get out and have a look at what's worked. And, and there are some, um, some that I'm really excited about, uh, so I said that Ron Rabideau sent me some pollen from Jersey Manic, which is Brachycarpum by uh, Macabianum. And I can't get any of those Macabianum F1s to grow, but I got a lot of seed from a back cross with Jersey Mammoth. So I'm pretty excited to see if those germinate. Wow. That's probably my number one. <laughs> <laughs> getting those to see if anything can, can keep those macabianum traits, but be hardy in a minus 35 Celsius. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. And I've a, got, few, a few, a few others. Yeah. Yeah. I've got to get um, my name on a list to get some of your big leaf hybrids as they come out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll email you in the fall when I have my list. <laughs> And I, 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 you know, I, I remake, I remake a lot of the same crosses every year, just hoping that one seedling will be a one-off, which is, I think, probably insane, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's the the great part of being a hobbyist is you just yeah you do whatever you want and that's that's okay <laughs> and that's it yeah yeah no I I do like this time of year and you know it's just a tough month and I'm I'm better now so getting back out there and realizing how many weeds I have to pull through the woodland, but it's all right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is. You're right though. It is a good time because you can see the, the ones that have worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they look like bananas. <laughs> there's some, <laughs> some of them. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> that is and then there's always that one, bananas. there's always that one that you're like, Oh, I hope this works. And then you get nothing. And it's like, yeah. well, <laughs> Oh, well. Right. We, we have um, like a team of people and sometimes different people make crosses. Oh, wow. And yeah. um, I mean, we're not, <laughs> that's not all we're doing, but it's, um, yeah, of course. but I, I always like to like to blame the person who made the cross. <laughs> it's like, it's their fault. It's not, it's, it's not because it's not going to work. It's because one of us did it wrong and next year it's going to work just fine. <laughs> just fine. Well, it sounds yeah. like you hybridizers just have a great time. Oh, well, sometimes. <laughs> Any time of year. Um, yeah but there is like if you miss it by a day if you miss the sticky the stickiness on the the female part by a day you're gonna get fewer no seeds and mm. and getting that timing right you know sometimes it's not going to work anyway but getting that timing right is not always easy like it happens to rain <laughs> yeah <laughs> you have no chance right yeah. Your pollen gets washed off. You made the pollination, it yeah. rains. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all these intricacies that you have to be aware of. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> but it's fun. But it's fun, and you're always learning. Mm -hmm. And you're outside, which is always nice. Mm -hmm. That's right. And you're creating new new plants. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, hopefully we can see some of them on the market soon. <laughs> before too too long yeah 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 it is a time-consuming uh, process but yeah well it's a worthwhile hobby it's a lot of fun like i said i'm i have a great time mm -hmm. even if no one 
grows these plants within a few hundred kilometers of me. <laughs> so it's really nice to have a chance to talk about it because nobody wants to talk to talk with me about plants. <laughs> well, but hopefully uh, just the fact that you have these plants on your property mm -hmm. and people do get to see them. And especially if you go into the nursery business at some point in time, yeah. you know, yeah. there's an awareness yeah. and people will become curious and, you know, yeah possibly spread the, um, the hobby. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, I mean, that would be the ideal is, is getting some more, getting some more people interested, mm -hmm. I think. And, and, you know, having people through the garden as it matures, because it's still, you know, it's still pretty young. It's not certainly as impressive as, as a lot of those old, uh, I'll, I'll use your, Carmen Drive as an example, like what Carmen Drive used to be with the just a couple acres of these massive plants. No, mine doesn't look like that yet. Um, but it will. But it will, I hope. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and actually, Paul, I have yeah. a quick question for you. You, you did oh, no. clear. Uh, no, this is a good one. You did clear <laughs> yeah. a lot of the trees, which you had to. I you did. To grow your I did clear a lot of, of trees, yes. So there's been some discussion on the rhododendron chat group um, mm -hmm. about, uh, well, not a lot of discussion, but it has come up to do a waffle type of planting where you lay down, yes. um, you know, logs in a waffle shape or pattern yep. and yep. grow the rhododendrons in the middle. So have you done anything like that with the logs? You know, sort of, um, but I mostly... So most of the plant, the trees that I had to clear out were what are Eastern cedar. And oh. so because it's a farm, I stripped and they don't, they, they last forever. Mm. So they, they rot very, very, very slowly. So no, most of the trees that I've taken out have been repurposed as fence posts to redo the fencing around the, the property. Some of it I've oh, had okay. milled and I made a, our neighbor made a bed frame for us out of some very of them. Nice. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. And, um, but I do that, I've taken out some poplar as well, which rots very quickly. Um, so I've done some, you know, taking branches off pines and, uh, but I mostly do a, I don't know if they'd call it a waffle. I mostly do a square around it okay. and then, and then amend the soil in the middle. And then the, the rhododendron can grow out into the rotting pine or, or poplar or whatever. Mm -hmm. So not, not quite the same as, as you've seen described the waffle bed no but yeah i, I think it. we could do a whole podcast episode about how to grow a rhododendron because everyone seems to do it a little differently <laughs> yeah and it, it really is so dependent on so, what the soil is like like yeah. mine i have to add something that adds uh, moisture retention but you know somewhere else they might have to add rocks and sand to it and then here where my parents live on the limestone you have to dig all the soil out and replace it to be yeah, right, or put down a lot of sulfur. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Well, yeah. Paul, this has been really great. I appreciate you taking some time. Oh, no. Thank you us. for asking me. Thank you both for asking me. I have a great time talking about plants. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this really has been wonderful. It's, a, it's been a great yeah. chat, and it's good to see you well again and uh, really thriving yeah. on all that you're doing and sharing it with yeah. us. Thank you. Oh, no. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, roadie friends. Ryan here. I'm looking forward to the release of our next episode, where we'll be sitting down with Dr. Robbie Hart. Robbie is the William L. Brown Center curator and an associate scientist at the Missouri Botanical Garden in St. Louis. He has a rich publication record and works primarily on long-term monitoring of alpine biodiversity in the Himalaya. Robbie has some interesting work regarding flowering time shifts in rhododendron that involved extended fieldwork on Yulong Mountain in China, where I've been. He also is interested in place-based traditional ecological knowledge and will discuss his work with two cultures, both of which are rich and intimately connected to the seasonal and elevational progression of our beloved rhododendrons. It promises to be an intriguing and adventure-filled chat. We'll see you there. Curious to learn more about the topics discussed in this episode? Visit our website at www.rhododendron.org. 
Here, you'll find tons of rhododendron resources, including tutorials, blogs, events, databases, and more. Click on the podcast link on the homepage to find more episodes, suggest a topic for a future episode, and get in-depth information about the people, places, and plants featured here. Until next time, keep carrying that torch for rhododendron, and don't forget to talk endlessly about this podcast to all your friends and family.